Welcome to the checkout, Aura Wise, co-founder, co-initiator of Hospitality for Humanity, Brooklyn-based chef and fellow Ashkenazi Jew, anti-Zionist in the food industry. I feel like we are one in a million. Thanks for making time to, uh, to talk with us today. Thanks to the monstrous behavior of uh, other members of our tribe, so to speak. There's more and more of us every day, though. More and more of us every day. So uh, tell us a little about yourself. Let's let's start from from the beginning of who are you and, you know, what's what's motivating you these days? Ooh, <laughs> those are those are big questions. <laughs> um, uh, well, I I am a queer anti-Zionist Jew and food systems worker, as you um, said. Thank you. Uh, and I was born in Jerusalem. I grew up deeply rooted in, in Jewish tradition and community. My father is a rabbi and my mother was a Jewish day school teacher. Um, I uh, lived in Jerusalem on and off several times throughout my youth. Um, and I was raised to be um, really critical of the history of colonialism and genocide here in the United States um, and very uh, much engaged in civil rights and social justice work here in the United States and simultaneously raised to feel this intense, passionate commitment to Israel um, and was, uh, you know, educated um, in a very whitewashed and, um, you know, self-righteous uh, version of the history of the colonizing of Palestine and the creation of the Jewish state. Um, and uh, I am... Uh, motivated by many things right now, but one of them is like a deep sense of um, reparations uh, that I'm committed to. And I um, am uh, very much working in food systems now after having spent a decade and a half um, working in education and media production um, because I, when I was there in Palestine, running digital storytelling workshops with youth in refugee camps in the West Bank, um, helping produce the um, Slingshot Hip Hop, the amazing Palestinian hip hop uh, documentary that a dear comrade, Jackie Saloom and team made that premiered at Sundance in 2008. Um, I, I had the amazing honor of helping organize the indigenous youth delegation to Palestine and around that time as well. Um, and when I was there uh, doing this work that was about uh, narrative strategy, breaking the silence around um, Israeli apartheid and occupation um, and uh, partnering with Palestinian cultural centers in preserving and um, uh, preserving their culture and empowering their young people, I started to see the ways that um, the Israeli occupation was very deliberately designed to control and destroy Palestinian food ways um, uh, as one of the main uh, strategies for subjugating a people. And then was able to make the connections and see the ways that um, 
indigenous people here in the United States and Turtle Island um, were displaced from land that they um, had developed cultural and um, physical uh, needs and relationships with over generations and generations and had their food practices and food sources destroyed very deliberately. So I started to make that connection. Um, and also I saw the way that when, um, if you think about it, it, Palestinians were a predominantly, not entirely, but predominantly agricultural people. And when so many were hundreds of thousands, um, almost a million were displaced uh, in the late 40s and early 50s before, during, and after the creation of the state of Israel. Um, they were, of course, displaced from their agricultural lands. Um, so many have not been allowed to return home, as we know, in direct violation of international um, law. Um, and uh, these refugee camps have become their home for now decades. And in these refugee camps, in the markets there, um, it is often almost all uh, European and Israeli processed packaged food products. Um, and so what I started learning and seeing while I was there um, and recognizing an uncanny resemblance to bodegas here in um, you know food apartheid neighborhoods like Red Hook, or, um, you know, oh, many, many years ago, the work that I was doing with folks doing, you know, healing justice work in like South Bronx, um, uh, the parallels I was seeing were, were striking me and were part of what helped me see the underbelly of Israel and begin to unlearn um, this romanticized um, relationship to it. And so I began to see that, Palestinians who somehow have managed to remain on their land and actually then somehow managed to survive uh, Israeli settler attacks, poisoning, burning, uprooting trees, uh, stealing livestock, um, uh, can't get their crops or, you know, their harvest to market, right, Be through uh, the apartheid wall or through Israeli military checkpoints. And so literally I came to understand how these Palestinian markets and these Palestinian communities in um, the refugee camps are quite literally a captive market. Like I came to understand that's it, it's not theoretical. That's not a, a metaphor in this context. Um, so about 10 years ago, I decided to um, step away from the education work that I was doing then. I was the youth education director for a progressive synagogue in Brooklyn. Um, so I spent around a decade developing non-Zionist, not Eurocentric, not heteronormative um, wow. uh, <laughs> curriculum. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it really was. And I, I, yeah. I have so much gratitude and respect for um, my rabbi there. Shout out to Ellen Lippman, who also dealt with tons of, um, you know, Zionists showing up at synagogue saying, oh, yeah, you know, you have a, you're supporting your, uh, what do you call it, employing a terrorist supporter and all these things. Um, but that was really important work. And I do remain committed to, to obviously being accountable to the consciousness raising 
and transformation work that we need to do within our communities of origin, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I had to take a break from that, and um, because also I was recognizing that I was I was tired and uninspired, and unfortunately, um, I uh, unfortunately it does feel like banging your head against the wall. Like, let's be real about that. You know, that um, we're, I mean, we can get into like the reactionary racist Zionist responses to people simply calling for a ceasefire, like, you know, uh, uh, simply calling for an end to deliberate um, massacring of children and bombing of hospitals. Um, uh, but anyway, so I, uh, stepped away from that work about 10 years ago to start working in food systems, um, with the, uh, intention of coming back into Palestine solidarity work, um, with some skills and relationships, um, uh, that could be useful in, um, supporting Palestinian food sovereignty and also, um, food being such a uniquely powerful um, medium for cross movement building, right? And um, be because it's creative, but it's also um, nourishment. And you know, food is so central to um, colonial uh, projects um, in terms of, like I said, displacing and subjugating people um, and erasing and destroying people. Um, but also uh, food is such an incredible, powerful part of uh, resistance and self-determination projects. Wow, I, that, that is amazing. I also just want to point out uh, the parallel lives. Uh, there's some big differences. I grew up uh, conservative Jewish, didn't have the, the level or depth of Jewish experience that, that you did, other than dabbling a bit with the Orthodox and the, uh, the Lubavitchers for a while, which is a story for another day. <laughs> Um, but also, uh, being an activist in New York, um, 20, 25 years ago, being in and out of the food industry, burning out of, of working as an activist and just committing myself full time to the food industry over at this point, well over 20 years ago. And, um, I actually, I just want to dig in a little bit more to your Jewish identity. Um, cause I, I don't get to talk about this with a lot of people who, share a lot of these values and for those of our listeners who are not aware of this sort of divide in the jewish community i would pretty much call it a cultural civil war right now it's extremely polarized so i feel extremely fortunate to be able to to talk to you and having uh th this sort of stuff in common um particularly revolving around the food industry and i don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about you know how being jewish um judaism your your background as as a as a secular uh, reform progressive jew um motivates inspires as well as frustrates you drives you crazy um would love to hear a little bit about that um yeah i i think that's actually i think you're right that it is really important for us to um without without contributing to and reinforcing the racist dismissal of Palestinian voices and the privileging of Jewish voices that happens so much in, you know, mainstream media and U.S. culture, 
it is still really important for us to have spaces like this where we as anti-Zionist Jews can share our experiences um, so that we can kind of put the breadcrumbs on the path for other people who, you know, who are um, maybe trying to get out. Because I, I heard an Israeli anti-Zionist um, BDS activist so perfectly articulated that it's it's like a cult. Though Zionism um, functions like a cult. And why there's such virulent attacks on anti-Zionist Jews from you know, Zionist Jews is actually because that's what happens with cults is if somebody makes their way out, um, they, they and start to ask questions, then the people inside might start to ask questions if um, they're not like immediately delegitimized and ostracized, right? Um, so I do think it's really important for us to talk, share our processes, like, and, and, you know, how did we make it out and unlearn <laughs> this Zionism? And um, and how were we able to deconstruct our identities and reconstruct new ones based on entirely new um, foundations? So I'll say that um, what how it happened for me was uh, I was 18 years old. I was living in Jerusalem and I was clubbing at night and during the day, like volunteering for environmental nonprofits or something and like working under the table at a pizza restaurant. And I ended up somehow connecting with rabbis for human rights and through them um, I ended up becoming a volunteer, volunteer English teacher, tutor for, um, the Jahalim Bedouin tribe who the, um, are the Bedouin are semi nomadic Semitic people indigenous to that land. Um, the Jahalim had been displaced from their home, their ancestral home in the Negev desert, um, uh, in 1950, when Israel declared it a closed military zone, and they had been displaced to the West Bank. Then in 1967, they came back under Israeli control when Israel began its military occupation of the West Bank. And then in when I was there, when I was 18 and or 19 and 2000, um, they were being displaced yet again and had been forced to become sedentary. Like I said, they're semi-nomadic goat herders um, and were being forced onto what I came to realize was a reservation um, in order to expand Ma'ale Adumim, which at the time was the largest Jewish settlement in the West Bank. And I was going there without any analysis or understanding of this history um, other than like the Jews needed a homeland and, and um, you know, created one and how amazing and romantic and heroic all, all the Zionists and Israelis were. Are you hearing um, hear my eyes roll when you said that? <laughs> I'll yeah. Do it again. And well, <laughs> and also, I don't know for you, but like, I felt like, well, uh, the anger that I felt and the sense of betrayal I felt when I, when I did come to consciousness mm -hmm. around this um, was deep because I felt like my, revolutionary impulses were manipulated and, mm. and, you know, redirected into 
reading these romanticized, you know, stories of the um, Irgun and the Haganah, the Zionist militia. Oh, don't forget right? the Stern gang. The Stern gang. Yeah, the most important, you know, the, the most <laughs> brutal terrorists, right? Yeah. Um, terrorizing and ethnically cleansing Palestinian communities to make way yeah. for the Jewish state. Um, so that so that's where I was coming from. Like I said, though, I was raised to be conscious of and deeply troubled by the history of land theft and, and genocide in the United States. Um, uh, and so when I was working um, with the Jahalin and, you know, they were living in um, corrugated metal shipping crates, that was the housing that the Israeli government had provided slash mandated them. And it was not 500 meters from Jerusalem's largest city dump, which was, of course, in Palestinian territory. Um, so that environmental racism became clear to me. And I was walking down this dusty path and realized this is a reservation. Um, it was definitely literally an, an aha moment where some some smoke and some whitewash cleared. And um, I was able to make the connections and realize there's nothing different here. The only difference is we Jews in the United States are choosing not to see and not to hold our quote unquote state accountable to the same values and standards that we have for others. Um, and so that was what first started my process of unlearning Zionism and seeking out, um, uh, you know, education and history and, and Palestinian voices. And then when I came back to the States, I went to college and naively tried to get the like Jewish groups on campus to like organize with me. I was like, guys, this is so messed up. Like the way <laughs> that Palestinians are treated and, and the Bedouin are displaced. And, and like, you know, cause then I had also been going through the checkpoints and seeing mm -hmm. how dehumanizing that was and all the things. And they were so awful in their responses. And oh, yeah. I was oh, like, yeah. oh, wait. And so it, and then the rest is kind of history in that then, except for this is an important part, which is that I wasn't yet anti-Zionist. Um, but when I started working with the, like, um, this amazing multiracial and international group of uh, student, undergrad, grad, and um, students and uh, professors, um, anti-Zionist um, Jews, uh, Turks doing Armenian solidarity. That's um, the that's the Turkish equivalent of being an anti-Zionist Jew, a Turk doing yeah. Armenian solidarity. Exactly. So they were wonderful mentors to me. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And that's amazing. Um, yeah. And so I, I think about I'm thinking about them a lot right now, um, for sure. And um, and you know Palestinian and Lebanese folks. Um, who uh, helped me radicalize and they gave me, you know, all those, those uh, um, classic texts, you know, uh, Edward Said, Zionism from the standpoint of its victims, but also actually one of the main turning points, and I do think this is important to share when we're talking with other Jews, is actually one of the things that was really formative for me. There were two pieces of political thinking that were really, really helpful in me reconstructing my identity. One was Ella Shohat, the um, Iraqi uh, Jew, like Mizrahi Jew, Israeli um, cultural critic and, and academic. Um, 
for peace, Zionism from the standpoint of its Jewish victims. And it totally unpacks the internalized white supremacy and um, the, you know, the ways that um, white supremacy and colonialism. I, I have both those articles open on my desktop just right now because I keep referencing them. So I just want to yes. say like we're totally mind melded right now. <laughs> I, thank good. I mean, I, which is so great. See, they're, 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 we are few but mighty and, and, very, <laughs> and very smart. Um, but yeah. And so that was really, you know, the way she breaks down how even Yiddish speaking Jews, right, like were encouraged to change their names and ditch their weak diaspora identities. And um, Arab Jews were forced to change their names and stop, um, you know, speaking or teaching their children Arabic. We could go on and on, but that was very um, enlightening for me, right? And exposing the contradictions of Zionism, which claimed to be about Jewish self-determination and pride and freedom, but was actually about uh, internalizing and replicating European romantic nationalism, which was the cause of so much Jewish persecution anyway. And so, you know, and um, was leading to so much lingu linguistic and cultural loss, even amongst um, Jews, let alone Palestinians. And then the other, um, Amiel Alkali, who is a Sephardi Jew who did, um, uh, wrote a book years ago called Beyond Jews and Arabs. And also really that did, that was really formative for me. Like breaking down these false binaries um, and of course false binaries that pit um, quote unquote Jews against Arabs, but also, of course, invisibilize all the non-European Jews or the non-white Jews, um, and also in, invisibilize the deep history of Jews of the Levant and North Africa and, and you know, the rest of the Arab and Islamic world. Um, so the way that Zionism and its narrow militaristic nationalism has led to so much loss for um our people too, in terms of not only a loss of any kind of integrity and values and honestly our souls, because, um, uh, you know, all, this awful oppression for decades and decades now has been carried out in our name, but also just erasing and distorting our history, you know, that contains um, you know, so much diversity, um, including, of course, a rich history of anti-fascist and anti-imperialist Jewish organizing um, um, who that was also led by people who were trying to, sol trying to solve the pressing questions that Jews um, throughout Europe, especially, were facing um, in the 1800s when Zionism, you know, started formed and started gaining momentum. Um, and whose strategies were just the opposite of Zionism. So Zionism's strategy was um, the opposite of Audre Lorde's wisdom, right? That we're going to recreate the master's house using the master's tools, and we're going to make ourselves the masters. And that has to be our solution. And then we know that um, these stories have been buried because Zionism has the stranglehold on most of our cultural, religious, and educational institutions but that there were um, very strong anti-fascist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist um, Jewish, you know, formations and movements and communities throughout Europe and the United States and everywhere in the world um, that had very different understanding of how we could 
um, fight the persecution that that Jews were facing. And that had to do with building relationships of solidarity, fighting for equal rights and democracy and, you know, worker and, um, you know, minority power and self-determination in whatever homeland was yours and all of these things. But Zionism has deliberately um, cut us off from a lot of that history. Oh, you know, totally deliberately. But the the the, uh, the the funny thing I like to tell people is, you know, uh, a century ago, Jews were the biggest gangsters and mafia. You know, it's Jews were working class. So you had all these alternate economies, alternate organizations of Jews. And, you know, I always wonder, like, well, what happened to them? Obviously, there's been a lot of upward mobility and assimilation of Jews. But, you know, where do you think Israel came from? <laughs> you know, it's a pretty similar mentality. I'm not saying it's the same people, but, you know, you really graph that kind of ideology from, uh, you know, uh, organized crime to now, you know, organized, you know, state-led, you know, state-validated crime in terms of how uh, the Zionist function. So um, that was incredible, Aura. Thank you. I mean, it, it's just great to talk to you because I'm, I'm learning so much um, about things as well as helping uh, sort of validate and make me uncomfortable in my own neurosis about, you know, about things that, I, that I've struggled with. But I do want to make a little time because like me, you're in the food industry. Um, and I'd like to, you know, tie that back in, especially since the majority of our listeners are food workers, food investors, food executives, uh, food adjacent folks, like in food industry adjacent folks. So tell us a bit about how you went from being, you know, Jewish educator, Palestinian solidarity work, um, to, you know, jumping off into the food industry and what you've done there. Um, well, I, so like I mentioned before, um, I knew that I needed a change, that I was feeling tired and uninspired and, and that um, wasn't serving the, the work that I was doing. And I come from a, a food family. My, actually, my great grandfather um, came to this country from Jerusalem um, and uh, started uh, a kosher and international food distribution company. Um, That's amazing. That, <laughs> yeah, that my in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, that what was it called? Entire, I'm just, just curious. What was it called? ABYs and Sons. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I, when I was growing up, everyone in my uncles were all working in my grandfather and my uncles all worked in that business. Um, some of my cousins, my father had in the the seventies, uh, kind of before and while he was in rabbinic school was a truck driver for the family business. Um, so that was a part of where I came from. My mother was a baker. Um, and my grandma was too. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, it, we, we probably, you know, most of us come from baking, you know, mothers and grandmothers ultimately. Um, but that was literally professionally how she, she made her way through college and whatnot. Um, and uh, so, and I was raised um, in a home where we hosted Shabbat Sabbath dinner every Friday, um, had a big garden Um and uh, was raised uh, in this kind of practice of, of deep hospitality and convening people around and through food. So um, like I said, I had started to see the ways in which food was being used to um, uh, 
suppress and destroy Palestinian communities and, and culture in Palestine. Um, and also felt drawn to the positive possibilities of working with food because it is so life affirming and, um, uh, can bring people together in such powerful, beautiful ways and help tell stories, um, uh, of the lands and the people, um, that the food comes from. Um, so, the boring part is I did a whole bunch of different things. I had a shaved ice and popsicle stand on, <laughs> in a beach town. I had um, my former business partner and I had an all women and queer um, catering company. Um, and uh, but along the way, I co-founded Fig, which um, that started as a um, study group for people in the restaurant and. Um, other parts of the food industry coming together once a month, reading books about sustainable agriculture, um, sustainable seafood. And that's where it started um, and then continued to grow. And we expanded our definition of sustainability to include um, thinking about, you know, sovereignty and equity and to have a more intersectional analysis. And so FIG's study group continues to this day. We do monthly political education and consciousness raising gatherings for all kinds of food, beverage, um, farm and hospitality workers. Um, and we ended up collaborating with over the years we we are like our network then is a that has been built through doing this co-learning um has been able to mobilize in support of different movement demands or needs and and different comrades um uh, initiatives. So for instance, instance, several years ago, the I Collective was formed, which is a national uh, collective of indigenous chefs, food sovereignty activists, seed keepers, knowledge holders, farmers. Um, and they um, announced that they wanted to come to New York and do an all indigenous from multiple tribes all over the land um, a pre-colonial cuisine series of dinners as an intervention into Thanksgiving. So FIG mobilized and helped produce that, helped host and produced um, uh, this team of 12 Native chefs who came in for that. We mobilized to send to send relief and help do fundraisers. And actually, I was a chef on a farm brigade in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria hit. Um, so we've been doing that solidarity work. Um, and as I said, I had stepped away from the front line um, work in in the Palestinian liberation movement for a few years, but we were always working on building the connections. Um, and one of the important strategies I've devoted myself to is um, acknowledging that for those who have capacity and access, that that internal transformation work within Jewish communities must be done. But also, we know that the you know that the global South is a, a place uh, rich with um, shared and parallel struggles and strategies for survival and resistance that, um, uh, you know, we need to be committed to um, supporting Palestinian organizers in connecting with, right? And there's more of us than them, quite literally. And um, so, uh, we have done a lot of teach-ins and pop-up dinner series um, uh, with Palestinian 
Black, Indigenous, Puerto Rican, Asian diaspora, food workers of different sorts, um, you know, talking about the parallels in um, the struggles against the struggles to decolonize um, land and culture and foodways and the awesome um, uh, food sovereignty projects out there. So the kind of main work we've done together that I think is really important to lift up in this moment um, is several, several years ago, we, um, uh, Fig worked with, uh, JVP and, uh, um, voice for peace. Yes. And, um, they just like kind of helped produce this video, which I can send you after, or maybe you've already seen it. Um, uh, and, uh, chef Reem Asil and, um, another Palestinian chef, um, and artist, uh, Amani Ahmed, um, to do a pop-up dinner series in um, New York called the Asymmetrical Table. And why it was named that um, is because at the time, part of Israel's brand Israel campaign um, uh, was this gastro diplomacy festival called Israel Roundtables. And Israel... Um, invests millions of dollars every year in doing all kinds of culture washing, including food washing and all kinds of um, brand Israel projects and collaborations um, with the mission of, you know, promoting a positive image of Israel and legitimizing their um, regime. And uh, so Israel Roundtables was a so-called gastro diplomacy festival um, and Michelin starred chefs from around the world um, would come and do collaborative pop-ups with Israeli chefs in like all over Tel Aviv. So um, we decided that year to, um, instead of picketing the, um, I think it was the musket room, um, was that year the restaurant that was participating in, they were the New York restaurant that was um, participating in Israel Roundtables. We decided to do a positive protest and to have this two-night dinner seri series with um, these two women Palestinian chefs um, and actually representing kind of from east to west, from the river to the sea of Palestine because Reem's family is from Gaza and Amani's family is from mm -hmm. uh, the West Bank. And we invited Black, Indigenous, and Latinx um, food and farm workers who are doing food sovereignty organizing to come and kind of do a teach-in as part of the, these gorgeous, gorgeous dinners. Um, so it was a cross-movement building moment and also celebrating um, Palestinian cuisine. And we called it the asymmetrical table, which was Amani's idea because it was the opposite of Israel round tables, right? Saying, saying, protesting this illusion of, of parody and this, you know, peaceful melting pot. Um, and instead saying, no, this is a situation of asymmetry. Mm. Um, the next year, it was Gabrielle Hamilton of Prune, um, who was, uh, announced to be the New York chef that was going to participate in Israel roundtables. And we were able to build upon the um, kind of political education we had done um, and the relationship 
the network of relationships we had cultivated over the year before um, to uh, launch a successful campaign um, with an open letter to um, ask Gabriel Hamilton to to take to stand on the right side of history and divest from uh, Israeli apartheid and not serve as an ambassador for Israeli apartheid um, and around like almost a hundred. Uh, food and hospitality figures signed this open letter and we were actually successful in getting her to pull out of um, the Israeli Gastro Diplomacy Festival. And once so, again, who is though, Gabrielle Hamilton? She was, uh, she's a chef of, I think, now closed um, kind of legendary New York uh, restaurant prune. Okay, cool. Yeah, she, like writes for the New York Times. Oh, yeah. It's, it's funny because I'm in the grocery industry. I don't pay attention <laughs> to that sort of thing. So, yeah. So, well, it's, it's restaurants that. like restaurants like that are, I mean, quite literally 1% of the population can. Oh, yeah, not totally. You know, pay attention to those. Um, but yeah, so those are examples of some of the movement building work that we've been doing. Um, uh, trying to fight the political ghettoization of the Palestinian struggle for freedom um, and by um, strengthening the web of relationships of solidarity um, between Palestinians and, and those working alongside of them and other groups um, fighting you know, U.S. imperialism and um, the colonization of their lands and cultures. Let's let's talk a little bit about Palestine and food, if you don't mind. Um, I, I read a story uh, in the last couple of weeks about IDF, Israeli Defense Force troops, just like, I don't know, bulldozing, incinerating thousands of olive trees, indigenous to the West Bank, you know, that were you know, hundreds, maybe, maybe thousands of years old. I mean, to me, it, it felt like a parallel to the slaughter of the of the buffalo, the bison, and that it's you know this uh, cultural heritage, food source, something so deeply rooted uh, for for the indigenous people of that land. Um, but tell us a bit more, give us a broader context, especially from your experience around the impact of you know Israeli occupation, Israeli policies on Palestinian food ways, food sovereignty. Um, I think, sadly, you are very correct to, to see the parallels um, between uh, the um, current deliberate destruction of Palestinian um, food systems and livelihoods um, and the historic uh, eradication of uh, um, the buffalo and other um, sources of food and spirituality and culture for the original peoples of these lands. Um, I mean, just to to give a a, a somewhat brief um, understanding of of what this looks like um, in in actuality that um, the majority of attacks um, in the West Bank and Gaza target the Palestinian agricultural sector. Um, and also mm -hmm. um, Israel has been uh, very intensely uh, controlling water sources and um, Palestinians are forced to pay 
three to five times more for water than Israeli settler communities and um, uh, Israeli farmers. Um, and the there's a very, very systematic uprooting and poisoning and burning and bombing of trees in particular. Um, since 2000, um, Israel has destroyed over 3 million fruit trees. Um, and this is a very... Uh, oh my God. Very sinister and, yeah. um, and calculated uh, policy because of their significance in building uh, the, the because of the significance of trees in building resilient food systems and livelihoods right and protecting lands from confiscation um and when israeli settlers um are kind of encouraged and now literally armed by the israeli government to carry out attacks especially during harvest season um and right now like the month of october should have been harvest season for olives, um, these attacks are very deliberately meant to demoralize farmers and, and um, disincentivize them from reinvesting and cultivating their own land. Um, and uh, the apartheid wall was deliberately built um, in many places, exactly between a farming village and their land. Um, so uh, many years ago, I spent a month in Jayus, which is a farming village in the north of the West Bank, um, doing human rights observation work because the um, uh, Israelis had built the apartheid wall right up uh, along the edge of the homes in the village, cutting them off from their farmland. And they grew avocados and mangoes and other crops. And so we were there to um, try to provide some buffer um, and, or at least witness as these farmers every single day in order to access their farmland and tend to it had to pass through um, Israeli checkpoints in the wall manned by like 19 year old arrogant assholes with machine guns. Um, so, and they used the apartheid wall to annex large swaths of land that people just couldn't even um access anymore and uprooted an estimated 100,000 trees um, in just the building of the apartheid wall. So combined with um, the Israeli settlements, then what Israel calls closed military zones, and then these very um, disturbing kind of greenwashing uh, projects like nature reserves that are catering for Israelis exclusively. Course. Um, Palestinians are banned from around 40% of the West Bank. Um, and uh, this isn't even to get into the very intense, rigorous blockade that there's been on Gaza's land, air, and sea um, for the past 17 years before, since 2005. Could you, could you talk about that for a minute? Because I, I, if you're able to keep going, I know we're we're running up on close to an hour here, but if we can go for a few more minutes, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that, the Gaza blockade, if you have two or three minutes to give us. Yeah, I mean, I'm certain, I mean, I'll say, it, uh, you don't even need to know that much to understand the how horrific it is. But since 2005, Israel has enforced um, a blockade on exports and imports 
um, restricting access to food, agricultural inputs, and fuel. That was up until October 7th, right? That was before. Um, literally, and you can see this on Seeding Sovereignty has some good resources out there. Um, Dov Weissglass, who um, was advisor to the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, said that the idea is to put the Palestinians on a diet, but not to make them die of hunger. So there was that literally is fucking psychotic. They've calculated the calories. Fucking psych I have never heard another human being say that. That is fucking psychotic. Yeah. So that they was literally the so they literally calculated now. the number of calories on a per capita basis that they would let yeah. into Gaza for all these yes. years. Yes. Like who does that? Well, we know who does that. I'm just saying, but like genocidal maniacs. It's insane. Yeah, and that's what we say. This is a, a fanatic cult. Yes. And um, and very, very deliberate and calculated. And that's not even to mention the ways that they've specifically blocked um, exports and imports of like traditional foods. Like an example being um, Gaza was historically known for their black tahina. And that was specifically on the, the um, like blockade list. Israel has also enforced a military quote unquote buffer zone on 35% of Gaza's arable land. And then a maritime buffer zone, allowing access to barely 15% of the Mediterranean, which has, of course, historically been a primary source of food and livelihood for people living in Gaza, which is literally on the ocean, or, I mean, sea. on the yeah. sea. Yeah. And frequently kill farmers and fisher folk who are trying to work. And in this current bombardment, um, have been targeting them. Um, so be, all of Palestinians' ground and rainwater is under Israeli occupation. Um, Israel blocks access to the Jordan River and usurps more than 80% of the aquifer's flow. And so Israel is prohibiting the construction of wells, destroys Palestinian water infrastructure where there has been, reroutes water to settlements from wells and aquifers that Palestinians have been relying on for generations. Um, and then Palestinians are forced to purchase their stolen water at inflated prices. Settlers receive four times more water than indigenous Palestinians. So... This is whenever people say things like it's complicated, right? <laughs> um, you know, or well, they, you know, there's been these peace process negotiations and Palestinians keep rejecting things. None of the offers have ever been on the, the table. None of the offers that have ever been kind of on the table, because obviously the the genuineness of any Israeli politician um, regarding Palestinians is is questionable at best have ever included any kind of sovereignty for Palestinians over water, which is just one of the primary um, issues here. Um, and also, so for me, one thing, and, and before we close, one thing to tie it back to, to our identities and responsibilities as Jews is that when I started, when I more fully accessed my humanity by unlearning Zionism and joining the Palestinian struggle for freedom. Um, one of the main things I 
realized was, yes, I do feel a connection to this place, to this land. Um, I do love it. And that is precisely why I am going to fight like hell to protect the indigenous people of this land and end the horrific destruction, which is that Israel is carrying out, degrading the water, degrading the land, destroying ancient olive trees, uprooting, poisoning, or, or setting on fire hundreds of years, and in some cases, thousands of year old olive trees while claiming, I mean, that's a sacred, that's a sacred plant species in ancient Judaism. Oh, yeah. And we're destroying it in the name of dom it's it, just purely in the name of domination. Um, so Israel's systematic bombing of Gaza in particular, but also through the settlers, even more so in the West Bank, of the water and food production infrastructure um, has obviously led to tons of contamination um, uh, of, of soil and water and rehabilitation honestly, at this point, um, from like lethal military ammunition and white phosphorus is, is going to be really hard to imagine, even if we stop yesterday. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, you know, Israel has set up free trade zones. That's why, um, in the West bank on stolen Palestinian land, um, exploiting displaced Palestinians who've been prevented yeah. from farming their own land as construction workers and agricultural workers for it's a new enclosure. Um, it's, it's the new enclosure. Yeah. And that's why SodaStream, for instance, is on the international boycott list because they have operated their uh, facilities in, you know, these free trade zones in the West Bank. I'd rather just buy um, seltzer. <laughs> there are some great alternatives out there. <laughs> um, so I, I want to close by saying there are a few Palestinian food sovereignty projects I would love to shout out um, because despite this, um, overwhelming uh violence there is so much um courage and wisdom um and samud which is the palestinian arabic word for steadfastness so um i want to shout out that the union the palestinian union of agricultural work committees has um been doing so much work over the years <clears throat> that's yasmin um, right yes um, and they have uh, a humanitarian aid and rehabilitation um, emergency fund right now for people in Gaza when they can do that, but also displaced Gazans and also Area C residents of the West Bank who are experiencing, you know, escalated attack. Um, and also the Arab Group for the Protection of Nature, um, which does a lot of food sovereignty work in Palestine and Jordan and, and elsewhere in the, the Arab world. Um, and the Palestinian Farmers Union has teamed up with a U.S.-based um, nonprofit, Freedom for Palestine. So if people are interested in tax-deductible donations, they can do it through that. And they're planting um, freedom farms um, throughout the West Bank. Uh, so there are, um, you know, these, and, and there's farms that um, continue to, persevere. Om Sleiman Farm is one of them. Um, uh, and uh, I think people do know about the Palestine uh, Heirloom Seed Library. Um, and also based in Philly, True Love Seeds, um, you can, through them, you can buy uh, Palestinian 
heritage uh, uh, varietals of, of all kinds of different delicious vegetables and <clears throat> help support and keep that seed sovereignty alive. Well, Aura, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I, I feel, I don't know, like I'm just sort of blown away right now. I've learned so much from this conversation. Um, I already went to the gym today, but I feel like I need to go back and work out so much of this, <laughs> so, so much more of the spilkas that have uh, you're, come about. You're such and, a positive influence. Maybe <laughs> I, I wish I had that. Instead, I'm like, oh my God, I feel exhausted. Let's lie down. Uh, yeah, no, I already <laughs> Or actually more, I'm like, let's drink a martini is really my reaction. Yeah, That's I wish my I could do that. Strategy. No, I, I don't have the capability <laughs> of relaxing. So this has just been an incredible learning experience for me. I feel humbled. I feel um, outraged, um, I, but I also feel, I don't know if inspire is probably too strong a word, but at least sort of more directional in understanding what folks are doing and what folks can do, uh, particularly around the food issues, um, but also just learning so much more. I just learned so many more things about this issue than I had uh, an hour ago. So thank you so much. Any, any closing thoughts, anything else you'd like to briefly share with us? Um. I guess I would just say that I really think those of us in the US, whoever we are, have to think about what is our what are our resources, what are our skills, what are our platforms, and use them to work tirelessly to end US arms and aid to Israel. That is imperative. We have got to finally achieve ending U.S. aid to Israel. We know this is not just about Israelis versus Palestinians or Jews versus Arabs. This is about U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism. And um, we need to take responsibility, um, those of us who are in the United States, to, to do everything we can to, to end the biggest source of power and resources and protection for Israel. Mazel tov, Aura Wise. Thank you so much for making the time for the checkout. <laughs> thank you, comrade. Um, I hope to uh, get to build in other ways in the future. Right on. 